Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. We're going to continue today in our uh, Promises of God series. We're halfway through this. It's a short mini-series of about seven different messages on different promises that God has given us as people. And today we're going to be talking about God's promise to forgive. He forgives. And all the other promises that we've looked at to this point so far in this series, the promise of God's presence with us, to be present with us, the the promise that God is a welcoming God, uh, the promise uh, that God listens to us, that he hears us like we talked about last week, all of those actually uh, have their fulfillment on the other side of this promise today, that he forgives us. So that God forgives is fundamental to so many of the other promises that we have talked about or that we won't get to in this series. It's an important one. Now, with that said, it's kind of interesting because it has not, this promise of God's uh, um, uh, forgiveness has not always been a centerpiece of Christian creeds that have been uh, adhered to throughout the ages and that we say today. In fact, uh, that would be the case for the Apostles' Creed. Um, I'm going to mention where specifically that comes in in a moment, but to give you a little bit of the background, um, there was a lot of persecution, well, there was some persecution of the church in the first three centuries um, in the Roman world. It was kind of on and off. Sometimes, in fact, it's a little bit inflated in terms of what we think about because the times where it was at its worst were kind of acute and, um, and focused. But there was one time in which the persecution of God's people uh, was severe in those first few centuries, and that was at the beginning of the fourth century um, in Rome. And there was about a decade of time in which uh, Christians, were, it was being demanded of them that they uh, renounce Jesus and that they make sacrifices to the Roman gods. And if they did not, they would be killed or they would be imprisoned, or at the very least, they would have their possessions taken away from them. And during this time, not every Christian held fast to their faith. Some renounced Jesus, um, some kind of caved to the pressure, um, and, uh, and, and ended up sacrificing to these Roman gods. This period of persecution was relatively short. It only lasted for about a decade. Kind of the turning point was Constantine, uh, the Roman emperor at the time. Um, around 312 AD had a conversion of his own, and then he ended up kind of Christianizing the Roman Empire. And it, it didn't happen overnight, but still within a relatively short period of time, the acuteness, the harshness of that persecution ending in the deaths and imprisonments of so many Christians kind of faded, and Christians began to kind of gather freely again. Now, as they began to gather publicly and freely, this included both those who had held fast and had, were being released from prison, et cetera, et cetera, as well as those who had not, as well as those who had renounced their faith and who had denied Jesus which caused some tensions in the church as they began to regather. And it forced them to ask some and answer some questions, such as can a person who has denied Christ be forgiven? And understandably, not everybody agreed to the answer to that question. Some thought that this this particular sin of having renounced Christ was an unforgivable sin. Some thought that it shouldn't be treated any differently and that Christ's blood was powerful enough to cover even that sin. And here's something that was going on there that's been a common experience for the church throughout history, and that is that when the church goes through a crucible, a trial of some kind, we're we're forced to have to 
investigate more deeply certain doctrines and beliefs that we have. I mean, I think on a much lesser degree, that's something that some of us have encountered even over the past couple of years. And so the theology of God's forgiveness towards sins was under the microscope as a result of this crucible that the church went through of persecution. And at the end of this time, as the church wrestled with what to do with those who had renounced the faith but were coming back to the church, the consensus was that there is no sin, ultimately, that falls outside of the grace of God if there's sincere repentance and belief. And this was then codified by adding a line to what we know as the Apostles' Creed today that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. That period in the church's history was the impetus for the addition of that line and that creed. Now, other sins since in the church's history have been questioned, is this one now the unforgivable sin or is that one some sexual sin, some, you know, suicide has been a question throughout history, but the consensus of the church nonetheless has continued to be, as well as the testimony of scripture, that there is no sin that falls outside of the grace of God, except the New Testament says the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which really at the end of the day is a persistent denial of Christ to the very end of our lives. And so this was an important and formative time in the church's history. And God's promise of forgiveness that was reestablished and reaffirmed in that time in the church's history is foundational to everything else, really, when it comes to other promises that God has made us. It opens the floodgates of life and of hope and of healing, and of relationship with God and others, as we'll talk about today. But, but there is a problem. There can still be some hurdles when it comes to this idea of forgiveness. And that problem is that forgiveness is oftentimes not seen as something that is necessary in the society in which we live, and maybe to a lesser degree, even within the church. There is a well-known parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 7 about a woman who has a reputation for uh, prostitution, and she comes to Jesus in the middle of this party, this um, hospitality that was being offered by Simon the Pharisee. It was a gathering of religious elites where they invited Jesus into the mix to have a meal together. And this woman with this reputation enters into this party uninvited, falls at Jesus' feet. She weeps, she, her tears fall on his feet, she wipes them off with her hair, she anoints his feet with oil. And it's an act of worship. And the reason she does this, so bold and unashamed as to come before Jesus in this manner, is that she, who had been labeled as a sinner by those around her, had found grace and forgiveness in Christ. And she couldn't believe it. Nobody else had given her the time of day before this, but Jesus not only approached her and interacted with her in love, but he actually forgived her for her sins. And Simon, the Pharisee who had originally invited Jesus, was, he saw all this unfold, of course, and he was disgusted by this. If Jesus only knew what kind of a woman this was and he would have nothing to do with her were his thoughts. Of course, Jesus knew his thoughts, and so he tells Simon this parable. And it's this parable about these two different people who owe this moneylender money, and it's of different amounts, one much greater, one much less. And Jesus follows this parable, answer, or asking Simon a question, Simon, which do you think of these two, who were both forgiven their debts, loved the moneylender more? And Simon's no idiot. He gets the answer right. He understands that the, the one who'd been forgiven the greater debt loved that moneylender more. So Jesus then redirects his gaze to the woman, and he says, so it is with her. 
She has shown me much love. Do you know why, Simon? Because she has been forgiven much. You have shown me little love, Simon. Do you know why? Because you have been forgiven little. And by that, Jesus did not mean Simon had less sins than this woman, but he meant that Simon had less awareness of his sin. He had less of an understanding of the depth of his need for forgiveness than this woman. And so, a huge hurdle, one huge hurdle to having and experiencing a full life in Christ is not seeing our need for forgiveness. And of course, that's on a sliding scale because I think most, well, really all Christians would at least acknowledge our need for forgiveness. But that's not the same thing as grasping the depth of our need. Now, that might be because we have a low view of God's holiness like Simon and the other Pharisees. See, it's not that Simon didn't believe there was such a thing as sin. He did. It's not that he didn't believe that he had sin. He did. He just had a much lower view of God's holiness in that he thought that his ability to do practical works of the law somehow put him on a level with God. But that's to measure our holiness only by externals, which is a big mistake. Maybe that's more characteristic of of me, of us, of the church. But perhaps in our world at large today, there's a different problem, and maybe this has even creeped in as well to the church if we're not careful, and that is not a low view of holiness is the reason why we don't understand our depth of need for forgiveness, but the fact that our society lacks an objective view of holiness to begin with. We don't have a fixed point of morality by which to judge what holiness is, by which to judge what right and wrong is in an objective sense. And what happens in that case is the only way to establish what right and wrong is, is for every individual to become the arbiter of holiness or of right and wrong. And when that happens, we don't see our own need for forgiveness. What happens is we, we build a morality for ourselves uh, that, that fits the things that, that we value, that we celebrate as important, and we minimize the other things, and the rest is of little consequence. And the result is, well, according to that standard, we don't, we don't really have a deep need for forgiveness. And when we don't see our need for forgiveness, then we tend not to extend forgiveness to others as well. Maybe that's even an explanation in part for why we live in a cancel culture today, right? The idea that if somebody does something wrong, especially if they have a a large public platform, then they're, they're canceled. Now that isn't to say, by the way, that some people who um, have been addressed for wrongdoing weren't in the wrong and don't need to be called out for doing wrong. However, the goal often seems to be not just accountability for wrongdoing, but punishment. All right? People aren't satisfied until the offender has completely lost all credibility, has completely lost their platform, perhaps even their livelihood. That's not accountability, that's vengeance. That's punishment. And God is really clear in his word that vengeance is to be left to him. Vengeance is mine, I shall repay, he says. He's also very clear that the, the one who has been forgiven of sin must forgive others. And Paul in Ephesians 4.32 puts it this way, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The call here as elsewhere in scripture isn't just forgive others. Just forgive others. It's to forgive others as you and as I have been forgiven by God. That's the source of power 
by which we are able to extend forgiveness to others in unthinkable situations. The fact that you've been so broken and I've been so broken over my own sin that we, like the tax collector in the temple, beat our breast and we say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And what happens is your, your pride and your sense of superiority to others is crushed. You recognize the hypocrisy that it would be not to extend forgiveness to others. So the reluctance to forgive others is often a sign that there's little to no awareness of one's own need for forgiveness. And that is a truth and a reality that plagues our culture at large today. And to, and to some degree, I am sure, us within the church, I see it in my own life. So all this leads to my outline for the rest of our time. I'm, I'm going to ask and then attempt to answer these five questions. Each one could be a sermon in and of itself. But this is just a survey and an overview for today to kind of help us drill down into the depths of this promise. First of all, why do we need the forgiveness of sins? Here I am talking about our lack of awareness of the depth of our need. Well, why do we need it to begin with? Secondly, what are the consequences of our sin? Thirdly, how is it that we are able to be forgiven of our sins. Fourthly, when are we forgiven of our sins? That's more important than you might think. And then fifthly, what are the implications of the forgiveness that we live within once we've been forgiven? So that's what we're going to attempt to unpack here in our next few moments. Before we do that, I wanna to read to you a passage from Micah 7, because this will kind of serve as the foundation for answering several of those questions. Micah chapter seven, verses seven to nine. Micah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century BC. Uh, he was writing to Israel at a time when Israel's flaws and sin were fully on display for themselves, especially in regards to their abusing and, and oppressing their own people, the power structures and dynamics that existed in Israel. So a part of this was, of, of Micah's letter was calling out Israel. A part of him was projecting ahead to this future time of uh, of. Um, uh, of, of punishment, really, that would come if they refused to repent in the form of the exiles, and then even beyond that, a time in which, through repentance, God would be faithful to restore his people. So at the beginning of these verses, it's Micah speaking, then he kind of moves into speaking on behalf of Israel and that future experience of repenting and receiving forgiveness from God. Here's what he says. But as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication." So last week, we talked about the promise of, of God that he listens. We looked at examples of, of scripture where God for himself confirms to us he's a God who hears. And this is one of the passages I came across. I didn't quote it last week, Micah 7, 7, where Micah says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for my God, the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Micah speaks with a confidence in these verses that his God will hear him and will save him from his enemies when he calls out to him. Now, we could mistake his basis of confidence here, somehow being that he sees himself as morally superior to his enemies, and so that's why he would be favored by God above his enemies, until we read on. 
Because as you read on in the passage we just read, you see that the basis for confidence and salvation from God is not a sense of superiority, but an understanding of God's grace. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. So I want to answer the questions that we just talked about a moment ago using Micah's own words here from his letter. That first question being, why is it then that we need the forgiveness of sins? Why do we even need forgiveness of sins? Micah acknowledges this reality in his own life when he says, because I have sinned against him. So what is sin to begin with? What is it that Micah recognizes exists in his life that he needs forgiveness as a result of? Well, in in brief, sin is falling short of the mark of God's own standard of holiness based upon his own perfection. Romans 3.23, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible makes it clear that without exception, everyone across time and history is guilty of this thing called sin. The book of Romans is a place that spells this out clearly in in so many ways and locations. Paul also says in Romans 3, 10 to 12, in as clear terms as you can get here, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is one of those statements where it seems like Paul was anticipating pushbacks from his readers and potential loopholes that they would offer as suggestions for, well, maybe here's an exception. And it's like, Paul's like, nope, I'm going to preemptively nip all those in the bud and just make sure it's really clear we all find ourselves in this same boat. King David declares of this thing we call sin in Psalm 51.5 that we are actually born into it, if you read that passage. It's something that, it's like almost a disease that we inherit from our forefathers. So it's not just something we do. It's an actual inclination that we all have from our birth. Paul talks about us being dead in our sin in Ephesians 2, verse 1. That is, we are as capable of doing good with pure motivation in ourselves as a dead person is to do anything, is what he's saying. He also describes us as being enslaved to sin in Romans 6, 15 to 18. The picture here is that of a person in shackles. Now, they may not realize that they're in shackles, but they are in in bondage to this thing called sin, and they can't do anything about it on their own. The Bible gives us a real clear picture of this thing called sin. And so we need forgiveness of sins because, well, we are sinners, born into it, enslaved to it, incapable of doing anything about it on our own. Now, far from that being a pessimistic view of humanity, it's a realistic view of humanity. And it's a prerequisite to experiencing the freedom that God offers through forgiveness in Christ. We have to understand that if we're ever going to experience forgiveness in Christ. So that leads to the second question, what are the consequences of our sin? What's so bad about sin? Why is it something that we need to be aware of? Why is it something we need to be sober-minded about? Well, simply put, because there are consequences to our sin. Not just temporal consequences, but eternal consequences. And if people go on living in this 
alternate reality that there's no such thing as sin and, and, and no such thing as consequences, then they are going to be, they are going to be. So that's what Micah acknowledges next when he says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Indignation is just a, another word that means anger. The Bible uses another term uh, for this in speaking of God's wrath, his righteous judgment against sin. And if it's not acknowledged and dealt with, if sin isn't acknowledged and dealt with, it results in what the Bible calls hell, a place and or a state of eternal separation from God and the agony that will come along with that reality. See, the Bible describes hell as a place of eternal torment and burning, of agony and of pain. I don't know, I don't know whether there will be literal flames in hell or if those flames are just the best way to describe the experience of what hell will be like, but at the end of the day, I don't think it makes a huge difference because the point is, either way, it is not a good thing. It is not a, a, a place, a reality, a state where we want to end up or those around us that we love, we want to end up. If hell is, at least in part, if not almost fully, the absence of God, then we actually get a small taste for that now, don't we? Just consider the, the toil and the, and the futility and the pain that we experience in this world, and God is actually a part of this reality currently, and that's what we experience. In fact, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 even tells us that God is restraining our experience of evil right now. So imagine what an eternity of unrestrained evil, apart from the presence of God, his holiness and his gloriness, a place bereft of everything that is true, good, and beautiful. Imagine what that would be like as best you can, and you're starting to understand the reality of hell. That, at least in part, is a depiction of hell, one that the Bible gives for us, which is the eternal destiny of those who reject the notion that they have sin, that there are consequences for sin, and that they are in need of a Savior. And if we believe that that is an over-the-top response from God towards those who sin and towards those who reject their need for a Savior, that is, that is not on him. That is always on us. Every time. It comes back to a, a low view of our vision of God's holiness. I call it like cataract vision of God's holiness. Cataracts are the lens before your eye becomes more and more opaque, cloudy. You can't see clearly. That's what happens with our view of God's holiness. So some of us experience microcosms of coming to see God's holiness for what it is, in part in specific areas. Our eyes are all of a sudden opened and we're terrified and horrified by these things. For example, we know as Christians, as we read our Bibles, infidelity is wrong. But then some of us personally experience how that tears apart a family, and we see how horrific that evil is. We know that something like sex slavery is terrible and dehumanizing, but some who see it up close and personally then devote their lives to see it eradicated because of how horrific and terrible of an evil it is in this world get a glimpse into God's holiness and the way that he experiences that evil. We know from the Bible that the love of money is the root of all evil, but then we see someone who we know and who we love who's becoming more and more ruthless in their dealings with other people as they seek to establish for themselves fortune and security at the expense of others. 
It's gross. It's disgusting. We're horrified by it. If you've had that personal experience. Now, if we saw how much greater God's holiness is than our own understanding of it at every point in life and how wicked our sin is in comparison, we would all fall on our faces trembling before the Lord like we see God's people elsewhere. Isaiah the prophet, the apostle John in the beginning of the book of Revelation, Paul on the Damascus road. See, the problem of hell is not really a problem. It's not that God is too harsh. It's that we are too blind to see it as the just punishment that we actually deserve. There are real consequences for sin, both temporal and eternal. And we must understand that if we're ever to cling and experience the fruit of the promise of God's forgiveness. And that is our promise today. So let's come full circle and talk about that, answering the next question, how then is it if we so desperately need it that we are forgiven of our sins? Because yes, there is a way for God to wipe the slate clean, to break us free of our slavery to sin, to remove the eternal consequences of sin. And Micah, in this same passage, sheds light uh, on that for us as well. I will bear, he says, the indignation of the Lord, his wrath, because I have sinned against him until, and here it is, he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. So do you know, it's beautiful what Micah is saying here about his God, the one whose wrath he is under because of his own sin, is this same God is the one who is now advocating for him, who is for him. This very one whose wrath he is under makes provision for justice for Micah apart from his own eternal damnation. So he advocates for us. He, as Micah says, he pleads our cause and executes judgment for us. But there has to be a cost paid somewhere. It isn't just that he decides, well, there can't be justice in this universe that I've created. And if that cost doesn't fall to us, it has to fall to someone, and the only other option is him. Paul, succinctly, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, expresses as much when he says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. But, He didn't nail our sins to an empty cross. He nailed our sins to the cross in the form of his son who took them on for us. And the cost of our sin fell upon him, Jesus, instead of us, so that it says in Romans 3.26, God might be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. He is just in that the penalty for sin was actually paid. He is the justifier In other words, he can pronounce the verdict of not guilty over you and I because that price was laid upon someone else other than us, upon his own son. So this then leads us to our fourth question, which is maybe the one that at first glance you would think, why is this one in there? When are we forgiven of our sins? So the provision of sins 
The provision for the forgiveness of sins was made as we just talked about, but this next question, when are we forgiven of our sins, it needs to be asked because forgiveness shouldn't be assumed. It happens through personal relationship. Throughout my time in various Christian circles in my life, um, I've heard the expression used, we were all forgiven in Christ 2,000 years ago. And it was a, 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 a pithy, but kind of dismissive response to the question of when is somebody saved? Really, it was an answer that was given that had universalist tones about it, that really everybody is saved because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And what it did is it downplayed the reality that forgiveness doesn't just happen. It has to be received rather than something that is just blanketly applied across all people in all times and places because of something Jesus did 2,000 years ago. It's the difference between available forgiveness and applied forgiveness. Right? Based upon what Jesus did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago, forgiveness was made available to all, but it wasn't automatically applied to all. Yes, forgiveness through Christ is a free gift that God offers, but even a free gift has to be received by us personally. And the one who dismissively waves away that free gift offered doesn't actually receive it. And to receive it actually implies action and intent on our part. So here's what that looks like at the very least. It looks like recognizing you're a sinner that's in need of a savior. That's godly sorrow as opposed to worldly sorrow as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7. It looks like recognizing that your and my sin is against a holy God who has not sinned, who is perfect. It looks like understanding you can't overcome sin and I can't overcome sin on my own, that we are in fact dead in our sin and helpless in our sin apart from something outside of ourselves. It looks like believing that God has provided a means for our sin to be forgiven and paid for through the sacrifice of his own son who is both fully God and is fully man, without sin, whose death is of infinite worth and sufficient to be able to pay that price that we should have had to pay. And then it has a functional appearance to it as well. Functionally, it looks like turning away from your previous life of self-autonomy, where you get to be the arbiter of what's right and wrong, trusting God and humbly submitting to him in all things, however imperfectly, but continuing in a life of repentance and submission to him increasingly over time. That's what having received the gift of forgiveness will look like functionally in our lives. It doesn't happen unwittingly. It's an action on our part. It doesn't earn us salvation, but it does take what God has made already available through, our, through his son and it applies it to our lives. So the, important, the, the question of when are we forgiven is an important one and not to be assumed. Finally, what, what are the implications of forgiveness? The glorious implications of forgiveness. There is a lot that we could talk about here as the ripple effect of the implications goes on and on. But at the very least, at the heart of what happens in our lives when we receive forgiveness is that it paves the way for your and my eyes to be off of ourselves and to be on God and for then us to become more fully formed versions of who God had intended for us to be in Christ. Because the first thing that forgiveness does in our lives is it cancels the power of guilt and shame. 
which are the very things that cause our eyes to be on ourselves, to be introspective and navel-gazing. By the way, I've, I've heard it said, just to clarify, that guilt and shame are twins. They're just not identical. Right? Guilt is usually tied to an event in our life. I did something wrong. Shame is usually tied to the person, your identity. I am wrong. I am bad. Or put differently, guilt is the wound, but shame is the scar that's left over to remind you of that wound. Life in a broken world means that each of us carry guilt and shame. It's just inevitable. Guilt over what we've done wrong and shame over what that signifies about our worth and our value. And to be clear, shame is not always a consequence of just our own wrongdoing. Sometimes it's a consequence of other people's wrongdoing against us. But the implications of forgiveness are that both guilt and shame are canceled. Guilt is paid for and shame is pointed out as the lie that it is because no matter what anyone else says about you, no matter what you declare to be true about yourself, in Christ you are whole, you are valuable, you are given a new identity as worthy. Jesus now defines your identity, not you and not the world. Admittedly, of those two things, of guilt and shame, shame is often the one that doesn't go away overnight. Sometimes it can take one more day than a lifetime to be fully cured of the shame that we carry with us. But through the forgiveness of our sins, the difference is, even if that's an ongoing, lifelong thing that we're surrendering to the Lord, that we're receiving healing from the Lord in, through forgiveness of sins, you've truly been freed from the power of sin to be able to discover this new identity of value and worth that you have in God's eyes. Your eyes can now be off of yourself and onto him, which leads to the second implication of forgiveness. Forgiveness cancels the power of guilt and shame so that we can enjoy a relationship with God because it's through relationship with God that transformation and healing are available in your life. See, there's a process of growth in Christ-likeness that many of us have heard that we describe as sanctification, and we have a lot of different approaches to that, right? The spiritual disciplines that you implement in your life, acts of obedience that, that help you to grow. But simply put, sanctification is just seeing God more rightly, because as you do, you will become more like him. Maybe that's a different angle on sanctification than you've thought about before. It's really just about the veil being continually removed more and more so that you can see him for who he is, and in direct correspondence to that, you become more like who he's intended for you to be. This is what the apostle Paul is teaching in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He's recalling in this passage a scene from the book of Exodus where Moses has just come down from a face-to-face encounter with God, and Paul talks about what is now possible for all Christians through forgiveness having opened this way to an intimate relationship with him, one like Moses enjoyed at Mount Sinai. And he says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking at him, able to see him, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In short, he's saying, to behold the Lord is to become like the Lord. Similarly, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 
chapter 3, his first letter, about how our sanctification will be complete when sin no longer hinders our ability to see Jesus as he is. Here's what he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Beholding is becoming. So the next time you think about the implications of forgiveness in your life, it's not just about God no longer holding your sin against you and removing the guilt. It's about how forgiveness opens up the pathway to relationship with God and the healing and restoration that's possible through that relationship. So forgiveness paves the way for you and I to get our, off, our eyes off of ourselves, off of our own guilt and shame, because it's through, and then looking at Jesus, it's through him that we actually receive healing and transformation that we all long for and desire. We're gonna celebrate communion here in a moment, and as we do, we have a chance to be reminded in a relatively simple act that Jesus has given us of these profound truths. Maybe this particular promise more than most. But here are some of the facets that come through in communion of things we've already talked about today. In communion, we see that God is a holy God, that sin is an affront to God, and that there must be justice for the wrongdoings that are committed against him, that justice is symbolized in the broken matzah, representing a body that was broken and torn apart, and in the wine and juice, representing blood that was spilled out as a picture of suffering that is due sin. That's what's just. But in the same sacrament, what is pictured is the God who advocates for us. As Micah says, the one who pleads our cause and executes judgment for us. For the suffering and death that is symbolized in communion is not yours. It's the one that you were spared of that God transferred and said to his son. Because he advocates for you. Even as you approach the elements this morning and you come forward and you take of the communion, understand that you can be reminded that it's through Christ's shed blood that he's made provision for you to draw near to God, to come close to him, to see him face to face, to be in relationship with him, because that's where transformation and healing will be had. And finally, as you come forward to receive, you can be reminded that receiving is actually something that is active and not passive. As we approach the table, we do so humbly acknowledging that we have a need for a savior and we're accepting that free gift of forgiveness that God offers us, even as we come forward in that act of faith that yes, Jesus did this for me. And then finally, we leave that table with a renewed sense that our life is not our own, but with the call to take up our cross and follow after him, even as he did for us. So let's pray and, help and pray that God would help us in understanding these things more deeply I want to read to you Micah 7, 18 to 19. This is later on in that final chapter in Micah's letter. He says this, Who is a God like you, who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So Lord, May you open our eyes to your holiness. May you open our eyes to our neediness today, not so that we would feel bad about ourselves, but so that we would see the forgiveness of Christ that you offer to us for the free gift that it is, and to cherish it, Lord. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.